Thank you so much. You can have a seat, everyone. <clears throat> and we are going to be in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. And uh, that should come up on the, on the screens as well. Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. And I'm going to read that. It says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And that is from one of the last books or the very last book of the Old Testament. And it's also uh, Malachi was a prophet during the time of the rebuilding of the walls to during the time of Nehemiah, which is what we're going through on our regular Sunday service. And so I found this scripture really, really unique. When I think about um, the different prophets of the Old Testament, the prophets were different than you and I, okay? So you and I have a job, okay? We, we go to our job and we may even put our identity in our job, okay? Especially if you're, you know, somebody like a police officer, which, or, you know, in law enforcement, which really becomes something that it's a full, it's really, you're, you're on shift, but it's really a full-time job. And like a doctor or a nurse, we, we get this identity. It becomes part of us. But even in our occupations, we still have the, those, those times where we are separate from that identity because we aren't only just, let's say, a pastor, um, also uh, a husband, <clears throat> I'm also a father, a brother, a son, and so forth and so on. I'm not a friend. I don't have many friends, <laughs> but I'm working on that. Just kidding. Just see. So it's like with the prophets, though, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> there was uh, a book that's written um, by a, a leading Jewish scholar that I can't think of his name, but it, it, was, it was written about maybe 75, 80 years ago. It's called The Prophets. <clears throat> and he was, a, he, was a, he was a Jewish scholar. He wasn't a, a Christian, but he's very well respected by Christians. And he starts out this book um, on, on the prophets as saying that they were some of the most disturbed individuals ever to walk the earth. They were disturbed and because they were disturbed, the, cut, the type of um, uh, disruption that went in their mind is not something that you and I may could ever experience, according to this guy's exposition, which I thought was fantastic. They literally embodied that calling as being a prophet. Okay, so they, that was the number one thing that consumed them and consumed their life. They were overly obsessed with the sins of the people where you and I may look at a sin over here. Uh, it could drive a prophet nuts enough to go out and have to preach and, and, and even risk his life for that message, which most of them did. The prophets did some really wacky things, too. They just didn't preach. The prophets also enacted their message. For instance, if you look in Isaiah 
he is, uh, this is Isaiah chapter 20, he is walking around naked for three years. Do you imagine that? If I said to you guys, God is calling me with this really crazy thing to reach freehold. <laughs> Main Street. Yeah. I mean, God says to Isaiah in, in, in chapter 20, he says, go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips. And if you knew what these guys were wearing, that's pretty much everything. Everything falls. Take your shoes off your feet. And he did so. Going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. So they would enact something that was going to be, that's to be communicated to the people of God as a message from God to go over the top to show them and to plead with them what was about to happen if they did not turn. We see the same thing with Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 13, we see he purchased a linen belt and he wore this linen belt, which represented Judah. He later removed it and buried it. And later the Lord instructed him to go retrieve the belt and dig it out. And then it was all rotted away. Couldn't wear it anymore. God uses this picture literally to show Jeremiah what Judah and Israel have become in their idolatry. Useless. A useless belt. That A useless belt causes you also to become naked and be shamed. And there's many other stories, many other prophets, many other scriptures where we see this type of enactment. And they, again, they were literally disturbed. Like Elijah, right, running from Jezebel. Well, this scripture here talks about, in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, God coming to his temple suddenly, violently, uh, coming to his temple in in a way where he's going to do some damage. He's going to come as a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, which we'll talk about. In a few minutes, he will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Remember when Mary was told by Simeon, this child is going to be the rise and fall of many. This baby Jesus, this Messiah. Okay, Jesus wasn't all, Jesus was, came with a sword to divide. And Jesus was not only our king, so you can go through the Old Testament and look at all the kings, and you could see Jesus in them, what Jesus isn't and what Jesus is, or what was going to be. Like King David is a picture of Jesus as king. Jesus is also our priest. He's our high priest. He's standing in between God and us perpetually, constantly interceding for us. But he is also our prophet, okay? Jesus is also our prophet. The prophet is that which speaks the words of God. Jesus' mouth, because he is God, spoke the words of God. And when he, excuse me, put the Holy Spirit in his apostles, they went out and spoke the very words of God as prophets. So Jesus, being a prophet, 
when he suddenly will come into his temple, will do what a prophet would do in that situation. He is coming to communicate a message. Now, Jesus, embodying his message, went to the temple two times. He cleansed the temple when he went there two times. In the first cleansing, which is in John chapter 2, the temple officials confronted Jesus immediately, whereas in the second cleansing, the chief priests and the scribes confronted him the following day. You can see that in Matthew 21. In the first event, Jesus made a whip of cords to which to drive out the sellers, but there's no mention of this in the second event. So we have two recorded occasions of Jesus coming in cleansing the temple once at the beginning of his ministry and once if we're playing this is good friday for real which it is in our calendar but if if we if we go back in time on on passover night okay that that 2000 some years ago jesus had cleansed the temple just a few days before when he rode into jerusalem on the donkey so he rode into jerusalem on the donkey everyone's laying down their, their, ja- or their jackets, their coats, the palm branches, everything's all types of stuff. He's riding in and he doesn't do a healing crusade. He goes into the place, which is the most holiest place in all of the world. And he gives them a message from God. Yes, <clears throat> it was a rebuke for their greed and their money exchanging. And <clears throat> he was accusing them of using God's house incorrectly and even in an evil way. This was all true. But Jesus had a different purpose as well of going in there to that temple. So what was his message and purpose symbolizing and showing us as our prophet, as our priest and as our king as well, but primarily as our prophet, what was he going in to do? Well, if we look at John 2, 19, we see Jesus answered them and said, after he destroyed the, well, didn't destroy the temple, cleansed the temple. He said what? Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? Jesus didn't bother to explain to them. They weren't able to hear. They weren't his sheep. But John notes in verse 21, right after that, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus was speaking of the, of the temple of his body. So it was this tremendous claim of Jesus to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days which really was one of the main accusations that they accused him of in front of the the high priests. They twisted it around a little bit. It sort of lied and twisted the truth. But this is one of the things that infuriated them. This is our sacred, most holy place. If you want to know what people thought about these these temples and, and, and altars and holy places, just look through the book of Acts. And see, when Christians like Paul and Peter went into areas, when Paul like went into Ephesus and the temple of Artemis was there and he started preaching around that and they went right at him and said, he's, he's speaking against our temple, the great God Artemis. This, they were passionate about this. So if the pagans were this passionate about it, the Jews were this passionate about it. 
So this was a very, very big deal for them to say, for Jesus to say, destroy this temple and in three days, I am going to raise it up. So let's, I want to, I want to unpack this so you really get it. And I'm going to repeat this. Okay. I'm going to say this twice. What did this symbolize? Well, this symbolized that the place where people sacrificed to God to cleanse their sins, or not necessarily cleanse, to to at least cover their sins, the Passover, the lamb, the altar, the place where people sacrificed to God, the place where people met God, that's where you had to meet God, at the temple. That's where you went and you prayed and you had your sins forgiven. And you met with the presence of God in that temple. Jesus is saying that that would now become decimated, obsolete, and destroyed. So I'm going to say it again, but not, I'm not going to elaborate so much. The place where people sacrificed to God, the place where they met with God, the place where they were forgiven for their sins... That place is now going to be completely decimated and destroyed. And that is going to be replaced by the new temple, which is Jesus Christ and ultimately his church as part of him, as the building blocks in Christ. So, as usual, throughout history, with the people of God... Where they rebel, where they sin, where they completely go against God, they get disciplined. They get punished. And if you look at all the prophets, that's what they do. They go out and they speak about what's going to happen if you don't change. And they usually speak during the time where it got, get the punishments comes in. And then they encourage. God is going to deliver you. There's this pattern throughout all of scripture. We see this, that blessing and deliverance always follows that punishment and that discipline. So on the cross, see, this is where we're going to come. We're coming to the cross here. On the cross, Jesus solved this problem for the people of Israel and for us. He would literally not only become the temple that would ultimately be destroyed, but he would also become the altar, or better yet, his cross becomes the altar of sacrifice. And at this time in, in Jerusalem, there's millions of people. Right now, two, there's, there's probably a, a tons of people there. Back then, two million, some, some I forget, Josephus has it, it recorded that at any given moment, there was like two million different people uh, at the temple and just as many Passover lambs being sacrificed simultaneously throughout the whole week. I mean, it was a very visual. You you saw it. You smelt it. You were there. The Passover lambs, the innocent lambs, were getting killed for the sins of the people, remembering the time that God saved them from Egypt, and he passed over their sins and waiting for that deliverance again. Lord, we are here waiting for you. I, we're, we know we can, we can practice our law, but we're under this Roman government and you are going to one day suddenly come into your temple and make everything great because Malachi said it 
And now all the prophets talk about it. You are going to come. Your own arm is going to come and save us. So Jesus solves this problem by becoming that altar and sacrifice. He also hangs on the cross as the people of God. Because the cross is what Israel deserved. The cross is what we deserve. We deserve to spill our blood as a, as a, as a sacrifice for sin. But we could never do that. Our blood could never pay for it. It would do nothing. It won't even cover a half of your, one of your sins, your blood. Nothing at all. That's why death for those outside of Christ and outside of his blood is eternal because there's no hope for them. There's no hope to cover the sin. God's justice demands that precious blood. And the only precious blood that can cleanse it is the precious blood of God himself, his sacrifice, Jesus, the son of God. No other blood can cover it. That's why it's eternal separation outside of the blood of Christ. So Jesus solves this problem for Israel. He becomes the Passover lamb. He actually becomes the Israel of God standing in their place. And he would not only eliminate the temple system by his temple being destroyed, but he actually enacts the destruction of the true temple, his body. See, his body is the true temple of God. And he enacts that by allowing it to be destroyed for the sins of the people. The place where you come to pray, you've perverted it. The place where you offer your sacrifices, your heart is far from me. The place where you come to meet with me, it's an abomination. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Your whitewashed tombs, Jesus said to the Pharisees. And Jesus took all that on himself in his body, all those sins. And then on the cross, as he dies, he gets buried for three days, as we know. And then he renews the temple on Sunday morning. And Sunday morning, on that first day of the week, that new time period, the new age is being ushered in. It's breaking into this age. And now the new temple, Jesus Christ, comes out of the grave and is going to replicate himself now. Not literally, where there's many Jesuses all over the place. No, he's going to go up back to where he belongs, at the seat of power and authority. And he's going to send us something even better than his physical presence in his first ministry, the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit that we have in our heart now is better than Jesus' physical presence in his first ministry for as it relates to us. Because he was only in one place. But now the Holy Spirit lives in us. And now we can go out and become, under his headship, a part of that new temple. A part of that place where people come to meet with God. A, people, a place where people come to pray. A place where people come to get their sins forgiven in the person of Jesus Christ. But it could have never happened unless that, that temple was destroyed. 
Okay, and in AD 70, when the real temple was destroyed, it was an afterthought because that curtain split when Jesus was hanging on the cross. He said it's finished. The curtain, the veil to the temple, to the Holy of Holies, and that thing is thick. That thing split, and it's it's high, tremendously high, probably even higher than the ceiling, and it just splits down the middle, meaning everyone now is going to have the opportunity to come worship and fellowship and have relationship with me. This new temple that Jesus arose from the dead from the cross, <clears throat> it requires no more Passover sacrifice. It requires no more temple ritual. It requires no more sin debt for the people. It's like a collection agency that has absolutely no one to collect a debt from, just sitting there in an empty building with no debt ever. It is, it's going to rot away. And then it gets destroyed. And that's a different topic. But let's, let's, let's stay focused on this. <clears throat> this new temple requires no Passover sacrifice, no more temple ritual, no more sin debt for the people of God. So what does that tell us personally about the cross? No more Passover sacrifice required. What does that mean? You see, our sins, because of the blood of Christ over us, like the, like the people that were coming out of Egypt, the people of Israel, all right, hurry up, you know, make this, cut this lamb. And Moses said to paint it up here on the doorpost. And the angel of death passes over. That's why it's called Passover. Everyone who had that, there was no conversation between the angel of the Lord and God. So I see that looks like red over there. You sure, God? It's covered in the blood. There's no business there, angel of death. It's covered in the blood. You can't touch them. They're completely innocent. I want my firstborn pulled out. And that's what God did. He pulled out his firstborn child, as it says in Exodus. And that's why he retaliated against Pharaoh for his firstborn. But our sins are permanently gone on the altar of the cross. See, when you look at the cross... And you think about temple language. The sacrifice goes on the altar. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus says he's the temple. So he's embodying all these Old Testament pictures, all these Old Testament themes that the Jewish people would understand. And in one swift punch, he's knocking it all out. He's opening up the way back to God. And this is what it is. It's covered by the blood perpetually. Now, I know what that word means, but I just looked it up and I said, let me get the, you know, the, the definition so I can expand on this. And it said perpetually is used in the financial world, especially with investors, where you get a stream of income that never stops ever. It always perpetually comes in. If you, <clears throat> if you have a, a piece of a company that blows up, right? If you've just invested in Twitter, let's say, and uh, uh, Mr. Musk ends up buying it and it blows up, you may end up being, having that perpetual income. I don't know. But it never stops. <clears throat> Listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering Time after time, 
the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It can hide them, right? It's like all the dirt on the carpet. I just lift up the carpet when my wife comes down and I just sweep it under. But what happens? Dirt doesn't go away. It comes back up through the rug or you pick up the rug and there's a mess under there, right? It's got to be cleaned. It's got to be taken away. And that's what Jesus, that's what, see, the wall just sort of swept the dirt under the carpet to cover it until Christ came. And now in verse 12, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God for by one offering, he is perfected. God says this, that we're perfected. We're not good in his sight. We're perfected positionally before him for all time, perpetually, forever. It's never going to end. It's always going to be, you are always going to be covered by the blood of Jesus because of the cross. And there's no more temple ritual that to be good with God, that you have to do all these things to be right with God. I sinned, I got to go to the temple. You know, I'm a Jewish person, I have to do this. I have to wear that. I have to be that, have that identity, right? That's no longer needed. Now that identity is faith. You have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You profess Jesus with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this is a new approach to God. Just like you would go to the temple to meet with God, that intersection between heaven and earth, the temple where God met with man, that intersection now is Jesus. That's where we go meet God. There's no other way to meet him. If you're looking for God in any other place other than Jesus Christ, please You are never going to find him. You will find a a God, maybe, a lowercase g God, but you will never find Yahweh, Jehovah, King Jesus. You will never find him unless you go to Christ. Now, the church also is part of God's household in Ephesians 2. We are built, and this is all temple language, we are built on the foundation, this is Ephesians 2, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, which everything is measured by, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in the Lord. See, we're in the Lord. This isn't about us being this temple. It's all because of Christ and we're in and covered by him. And it says, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So this is all new temple language. And in Revelation 21, 22, I love this. I saw no temple in the new heavens and the new earth. Where's the temple? Who's the temple? The Lord God, the almighty and the lamb are the temple. That's the temple. So Jesus He went into the temple signifying what's going to happen with this temple system by embodying it himself at the cross. So there's no more sin debt for the people of God. 
That's why it says here, who can stand? He is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. And I said I would explain what a fuller's soap is. I had no idea what it was. Uh, apparently, it's like a launderer back in, the, back in that time. Um, it, the, 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 the fuller's job was to cleanse and whiten clothing. Because dirt and oils would get into the clothing that weren't normally taken out from a regular wash. So you take it to the fuller, like I guess we would take a dress shirt to the cleaners, and they would super clean it with whatever they do. But the funny thing is, is they would, they would put, if you, I looked it up and I saw a funny picture of this Scottish Gaelic tradition where all these people, women were having their feet on this wash, it was a washboard on the ground. And the cloth was on top of it with the soap. And they have their feet sitting on the ground. And they're singing a Scottish song to this rhythm as they scrub it and clean it. And that's the, the picture of what the, when God comes to the temple, that's what he's going to do. He's going to make us white as snow, clean. I'm not talking about race. He is going to make us clean and white and pure without sin. <clears throat> we see in Luke, John the Baptist, as for me, Luke 3, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will clear his threshing floor and he will gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This refining fire. Pointing right back to that scripture. Christ on the cross embodies everything that the Old Testament was about. And in his resurrection, he launches the new temple. The people of God are forgiven. The Passover sacrifice is perpetually fulfilled by him as a one-time sacrifice for the sins of every single person who believes in him. And now the gospel is not only open to the Jews, but to every tribe, tongue, nation, and language because of what he did at the cross. But there is such a personal application to this. And it's so simple. I, doesn't, I don't need to tell you a story. I don't need to try to persuade you even to do this. I think I've already said all I could say about that. Jesus is the only way. You, in order to understand, God has to open our eyes. He has to give us understanding. In order to come to the cross, <clears throat> in order to, I'm sorry, in order to come to Jesus, we must come to the cross and follow in his footsteps in our own personal life. We have to die to ourself. Again, if there was any other way for God to do this, why would he send his son to die? You have no, there's no reason for a building. You don't have to go to a special building to meet with God. You don't have to go to a special church service, say a special prayer, do anything like that. Go to Jesus Christ. Believe on him with all of your heart. Own what he did at the cross. And remember, we don't have to cry about it. We can rejoice in it. He laid down his life willingly and he willingly took it up again for you and for me because he loves us and loved us before we were even born, before we even knew what sin was. 
before we ever would even admit that we would ever think of becoming a Christian. If you ever told me 30 years ago I'd be doing this, I would have laughed at you and and then punched you in the head. Get out of my face. There's no way I would do this. But only by the power of Jesus Christ are we able to even take a glance at at God, let alone come to the Father. So with that said, let's let's pray. And um, then we're going to have our Lord's Supper. Before I pray, um, you know, the, we, we call this fencing the table, okay? So I know most of you here, um, we don't have any, any specific rules as it relates to children or not children, anything like that. This is for people who love Jesus Christ. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We think back to the gospel. We think forward to the redemption that the gospel is bringing us. But if you're, maybe you're not right with God right now. Maybe you're, maybe you're in a situation where you're like, you, you, you know, because the Bible warns us. He says, look, you know, don't eat with, with the wrong heart because you bring condemnation onto yourself. You know those passages. So examine yourself. But at the same time, God wants to forgive you. So right now you get right with God. You put your head down, you, you bow your heart and you say, Lord, cleanse me, forgive me. And come to the table if that's the case. So use your discernment, and um, let's just pray over the over the distribution of the of the Lord's Supper. Father, we we pray over this that you would right now examine our hearts, and that you would have us examine our hearts, Lord, as we partake in this sign and symbol that you've left, God, that represents your body and blood and what you've done at the cross. So, Lord, we come only by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you don't partake, it's fine. This is a no judgment zone. So uh, Kevin is going to play some some music and uh, we will, uh, Chris and I will disperse the elements. And again, these are a little difficult. So once you get these, um, we, we'll, we'll, you can try to open them up and um, get them ready. And then we'll partake with both the, the juice and the bread at the same time.
In John chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people, not including women and children, with five bread loaves and two fish. The next day, after this had happened, the crowd came back to him and he basically said, you know, you're, you're coming to me not because of the miracles, but because of the food uh, that I gave you, uh, to paraphrase. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And the Jews grumbled at him. And then Jesus went on to say some of the most uh, controversial uh, remarks in, in all of his ministry. And he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no part with me. Now, that's not what we're doing here. That's not what we're doing here. We're not literally eating the flesh of Jesus or literally drinking his blood because there's some people that, that some churches would, that would believe that. But I think this is so appropriate for communion, and I believe Jesus was sort of giving us that, that foretaste of what was to come because what Jesus did mean by this and he said this, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken are spirit and they are life. And when we partake together, why Jesus says he wants us to eat his flesh, and he uses a very graphic Greek word that means to chew on his flesh. He couldn't have said it any more vivid. What was he talking about? And drink his blood. That's forbidden by God, even. Well, he's talking about the symbolic relationship that he wants us to have with him. He wants us to be so intimate with him in our relationship that we're that close together. It's as if we are one with him. Because when we eat, if I take this piece of bread and I break it and you eat it and I eat it, it's both coming into our body and, and in a sense we're, we're one for a minute there. That's what the symbol means. So as you partake, remember what Jesus did. Do this in remembrance of him. The bread represents his flesh. The blood represents the being spilled for our sins. The flesh that was, that was mauled and mutilated and given up and destroyed for our sins as well. But also remember and look forward to that relationship that we'll have with him as he's, as he's present with us right now. I believe in a special way. Um, not in a mystical way, but in a special way, I believe he's present with his people when they partake. So let's partake together. So I'd like to ask our worship team to come back up and uh, we will sing this last song and, and then we will close. Please stand and move in your hymnals to number 503. Let's rejoice that now we belong to Jesus. Amen.
Not for 